Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 9. Uh, we have been in the middle of a series on the gospel of Mark, which we began around the beginning of the school year. And uh, we'll take a break for Advent. We'll come back to it at the, at the, in the spring as well. But we have come to chapter 9. It's the story of Jesus' transfiguration, but it's actually connected uh, to the story that precedes it as well, or that comes after it as well. And so we're going to read the two together. Chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, or 2 through 9, excuse me. We're going to skip uh, down to verse 14 and then begin reading uh, through verse 29. So if you want to follow along, you can in your Bible, but it's on the screen behind me. Uh, it's on your uh, screen at home as well if you're watching from home, and it's also printed for you. So just get your eyes on it someplace, and let's read together. Beginning uh, in chapter, chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Just, just, just a little piece of advice. If you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Peter could have used that advice. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. In verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they saw no one. They no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I commend you. Come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord, would you say? The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. And Lamott wrote that the opposite of faith is not doubt, it is certainty. And that has helped me quite a bit in my own life. Like the father 
in this story we just read, I, I identify so much with his struggle. I am often believing and at the same time struggling to believe. And I wonder if that's not true of you also. Sometimes believing, and then sometimes all I can muster is just wanting to believe. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I find that prayer from verse 24 there uh, on my own lips so often. And so if you're here this morning and maybe you don't yet believe, you're here and maybe you're investigating or you're going through a rough patch in your life and you're just trying to figure out if, if uh, Christianity has anything to say to that. If you're here and you don't believe for whatever reason, but maybe you want to, or you're curious, and this is a great, great text for you to ponder, to help you towards faith. At the same time, if you're here and you believe, but maybe you're stuck, maybe you're stuck, then these scenes side by side can help you too towards a greater faith because the key is we're going to see in just a minute to getting unstuck in the spiritual life. If you find yourself stuck is not more effort, it's more faith. And so there are two major themes, one from each of these scenes, these two scenes side by side here. And we have to be short this morning, by the way, because we have communion and in two services. We've got to get through this quickly. So this, you, may be, you may be hurrah or you may boo the fact that the sermon's got to be kind of condensed. We don't have as much time as we normally do. We've got to be kind of quick. Two themes, one from each of these scenes uh, that are really, really crucial in uh, the Christian life. And the first is faith. That's really what the story with Jesus and this man and his son is all about. And how faith is connected to glory. And glory is really about what the scene on top of the mountain with the transfiguration is about. And so we're going to see and just talk about each of those for just a minute. And then talk about the way that they're connected. Faith and glory and the way that they're connected. And so let's just walk through the text. First, with the first major theme of the passage being faith. And really we want to focus, we're going to work backwards through the text. We want to focus at, first at the scene at the bottom of the mountain beginning in verse 14 through verse 29. The disciples are having trouble healing a boy with an evil spirit that keeps throwing him into water and into fire and trying to destroy him. And the, the father is vexed by this greatly. He, bring, he brought the boy to, Jesus, to, to the disciples while Jesus and the three favorite chosen ones were up on the mountain. But they had been unsuccessful in casting out the spirit from this boy. And for Jesus, it's very clear that all of the difficulty here is really an issue of faith. I mean, look at his response in verse 19. Oh, faithless generation, he says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then again to the father in verse 23, he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And then, of course, the father's famous response, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so you see in all of those and really throughout the whole structure of this part of this text, the emphasis is on faith. This is about faith. The issue here is faith. And so this scene with the father and his boy, it is connected with the transfiguration in all three of the synoptic gospels, which is also significant. They are meant to be all together and they're meant to provide a contrast to say to us, and you probably already know this, if you've lived the spiritual life for any amount of time, we don't live up on the mountain, we live down in the valley. And all of the doubt and hardship of the mundane. I mean, up on the mountain, God bless Peter. Up on the mountain, Peter said, oh, it's good that we're here. And it is good, but it's not normative. You don't get to stay up there. Those are punctuated experiences. And we have those experiences, like the transfiguration. In fact, I'm going to argue later that we should pray for that kind of faith sight 
of God's glory because it's, it's what happens up on the mountain that, that gets you through what happens in the valley. But they are more the exception than the rule. For all the rest of, the, of life and the in and out of our days, we live in the struggle where poverty of spirit is thrust upon us against our will. But remember what Jesus said, the poor in spirit are blessed because the kingdom belongs to them if they learn the lesson, if they heed the lesson and learn to pray from verse 29. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I mean, that is, that is life with Jesus. One thing after the other after the other where you say this, this thing cannot be overcome by anything other than prayer. Our strength is not sufficient for the kinds of problems we are sure to face in life. They require faith. And people of faith pray. Now, as I've said, the scene of the Father and the Son is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but unique to Mark, and that's why we want to focus, because again, we've done this in the past in those other Gospels, but as we're working through this Gospel, unique to Mark is the part where you have this extended dialogue with Jesus, between Jesus and this, this Father, beginning in verse 21. And for Mark, the significance of the narrative is not the miracle, it is the Father's faith or his struggling faith because faith is necessary for discipleship. And Mark is a discipleship manual for the early Christian church. Mark's goal is to teach us, to teach the people who are reading in his original audience, but us so many thousands of years later, how to walk in Jesus' way, how to follow Jesus in the details of day-to-day -day life. And faith is a theme that keeps coming up if you just think about where we've been in this gospel. It keeps coming up. He keeps coming back to it because, of course, that's how discipleship works. That's how you do. That's how you teach somebody something through repetition. But one of the lessons that we learn is that you, the gospel—you don't learn the gospel and then move on to other things. You go deeper and deeper into the gospel. You don't like settle the issue of faith and then you're done with that and then you move on and you, okay, I've got faith. I got that faith thing figured out. Now let's get back to doing all the things I've got to do. You. No, you believe, and then you learn throughout your life how to have a deeper and deeper faith. Now, here's what the Bible says. Whatever is not of faith is sin. That's Paul in Romans chapter 14. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And therefore, the root of all sin is unbelief. The sin underneath every other sin is the sin of unbelief. Before the woman ate the forbidden fruit in the garden, she first began to believe wrongly about God. And her wrong belief led her to her wrong behavior. Now, see, that's an important thing to remember because this man, too, if you notice here, look, look down in verses 21 and following. He is unsure of the truth about God. Look at what he says, verse 22. He turns to Jesus, who is like a 1,000-watt light bulb at the moment as he comes down off the mountain, he turns to Jesus, who's been going around doing all of these amazing things, and he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And I love, I laugh, actually, at Jesus' response, if I can. Because of course he could. Jesus calmed the storm with a word. He raised Jairus' daughter to life. A woman, in the midst of that scene, reached out, to touch him in a throng, and the mere touch was enough to heal her of her lifelong medical condition, if he can. This man does not know the truth. 
he does not believe as he should, which to his credit, he acknowledges. He says later in verse 24, I believe, but, but help my unbelief. And there is, there's no more effort. See, that, that, there's no more effort that he can give, but there is more faith that he might exercise. And that's the point I'm trying to make. If you want to grow spiritually, if, you, if you're stuck and you need to get unstuck, if what, whatever the issue is in your own relationship with God in Christ, effort, effort is probably not enough. Because the root of sin is not a lack of effort, but a lack of faith. And spiritual breakthrough comes when you diagnose when you do something more than just say, oh, wow, there's this thing in my life I've got to fix. Instead, you've got to go a little bit deeper and you've got to diagnose the wrong beliefs underneath your behavior and think and you'll pray yourself out of them and then think and pray yourself into the truth. And that's the way sanctification actually happens. That's the way change actually begins to take place in, in the spiritual life. And so I thought, you know, I was trying to figure out a way to tell on myself here, but I just felt like everything I came up with was just a little silly and too personal. So just if we keep it just kind of bland, if you think about, think about anxiety, if you, if you say, you know, I'm just, I'm, and because so many people today are full of anxiety and just nervousness. So if you, if you find yourself in a bout or in a, in a period of time where you're just really struggling with anxiety or nervousness, here's what, here's what the Bible would, would counsel you to do. You have to ask so, why, okay, what's going on? Why, why am I feeling this way so profoundly? What, what am I believing? What am I believing that's making, that's, that's manifesting all of this anxiety in my life? What am I believing that's making me so anxious? And so Matthew 6, for example, Jesus says if you're anxious, if you drill down into that, one of the core truths that may, may be true for you is if you're anxious, then maybe, or you, you don't know, or you've forgotten, or whatever the case might be, you, you're not really keyed into how valuable you truly are to God. He feeds birds and he, he clothes the flowers. You really think he's not going to take care of you. That's the way Jesus says it. And then what you do is you identify that wrong belief. In other words, you think and you pray yourself into the truth. You say, you start talking to your heart instead of just listening to your heart. And you say, okay, God feeds the birds. And he clothes the grass. But he's my father. I'm not just a bird. I'm not just a, a daisy that's out in the field that's here one day and gone the next. He is my father and I am his child. And from all eternity, he has loved me as a beloved child. Of course he's going to take care of me too. And you think and you pray your way into that truth. This is, this is, the, this is the habit that we have to develop. So we are all, we are all a mixture of faith and unbelief. Just like the father in this story. We, we flip-flop, most of us, at least me, between the two all the time, sometimes moment by moment. And Jesus does not condemn this. I want you to see that. He does not condemn you either. Don't forget what we read just this past week in Hebrews in our community Bible reading about the compassion that he has for you and your struggles because he too is tempted, just like you. And so don't be all or nothing here. Okay? Don't approach this and make it an all or nothing thing. Faith can exist right alongside of unbelief. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. He said, the faith, faith that is the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. It doesn't take much faith. Little faith is real faith. Faith accompanied by unbelief like this man here is still faith. So remember, it's not the intensity 
or the clarity of your faith that matters. What makes the difference is not how big your faith is, but how big the object of your faith is. That's what saves. Not how well you believe, but who you believe in. Not the character of your faith, but the character of the one you have faith in. True faith always is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. And so in many ways, this, this confession by this man here is really, is really a confession of faith. Lord, I believe, but I realize I have so much more believing to do. Lord, I believe, but my faith is still so small. With that in mind, consider what Jesus says here about faith, because it is a bit unsettling, particularly for those of us who uh, have been in Presbyterianism for very long. He says, verse 23, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, we typically read statements like that, and we're like, yes, but. And then come the rationalizations. But let it stand on its own for just a minute. Verse 23, all things are possible for one who believes. Here's what that means. Faith unlocks the power of God. Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong because God's power is at work in my weakness. It's a great verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In other words, the opposite of faith, as Jesus uses it here, is self-reliance. And so there's a biblical principle. When you're strong and trusting in your own strength, you're actually weak because there are limits to your strength. But when you're weak and trusting in God's strength and not your own, then you're truly strong because there is no limit to what God can do. So all things are possible here is not a promise. Be careful about that. If you turn it into a promise it can quickly become an accusation. That's really important. Let me say that again. This is not a promise, and be careful, because if you turn that statement into a promise, it will, I've seen it happen over and over again, become an accusation. It'll, something like this. Okay, if all things are possible, if you believe, and then if things aren't going well, if they aren't changing, if they're going bad for me, then the conclusion I arrive at, then it's my fault because I'm not believing the way I should. So don't read verse 23 as a promise. It's a mindset. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, he said, Faith means not that I try to reason myself to God, but that believing the revelation given by God, I reason from it. Jesus is saying all things are possible is the starting place for how you think about your life, especially when you come up against something that is too big for you to handle on your own, like the disciples here with this boy in his malady. That's faith. Faith is a way of looking at all of life in light of who God is, not the other way around. Faith is confidence in God despite whatever it is you might be up against. The father said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That's his unbelief talking. Faith would say, God, you can do anything. And you are infinitely, not only infinitely great and strong and mighty, but you're infinitely compassionate towards us. The word says, you are waiting to be gracious. You love to help your people and then you reason out your life from that truth about God. You see the difference that makes? And then that's the lesson that, that, that Jesus would have you learn from this text. But the second major theme then, so if the first is faith, and you learn a lot about how faith works and, and how, you, how you get a greater faith here, the second major theme of the passage is glory. And that's really the bit about the transfiguration in chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And so we got to connect the two, but i got to show you first that I'm not just making this up. You won't find that word glory there, but the images of, you look there in those verses, the mountain and the cloud and the light that is radiating from Jesus' person. In this case, they are all allusions to the glory of God. 
And then there's the timestamp in verse 2, after six days, which is an unusual feature of Mark's gospel. He doesn't often do that. He doesn't connect events. But it, it means that it's, it's significant. And probably it's a reference to Moses' six-day experience on Mount Sinai in Exodus, Exodus chapter 24, verse 16, where it says that the glory of the Lord dwelt on the mountain and covered the cloud covered it six days. And so Mark wants us to think about that passage where Moses experienced the glory of God the way the disciples are here. So faith and glory are connected. And if your faith is waxing and unbelief is waning, the solution is the glory of God. You need to have an experience of God's glory like Peter, James, and John did here on the mountain. Hebrews 3.1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Though all of that glory was somewhat hidden in his human form here, in this moment, something amazing happens. It bursts forth, and he was transfigured, it says. That word is the word metamorphosis, just the way that a caterpillar goes into the cocoon and comes out a butterfly. Jesus, before their very eyes, was changed. He, he became something in their eye, the way they saw him anyway, completely different than he was before. They looked at him, and it was like trying to look directly at the sun. And with that allusion to the Exodus 24, after Moses met God on the mountain in Exodus 24, his face shone with glory just by being in the presence of the Lord, but he was reflecting the glory of God. He was the moon, and Jesus, was, and Jesus here was the sun. He was not reflecting glory. He was radiating. It was coming from within him. He was changed. And the disciples in the moment got a glimpse of him as he really is. That's the point. They... It, all of, the, all of what was hidden fell off, and they saw him in this moment for who he truly was. And it changed their life. Here's what the Bible says elsewhere about this. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says that the key to spiritual change is to behold Jesus' glory. And so the spiritual life, according to Paul, there is seen more and more. Having your, having your own veil uh, lifted so that you can see more and more of who Jesus really is. And the more and more of the truth about him that you see, the more and more you're changed by what you see. In 1 John 3, John says that when we, finally, when we get to heaven one day and we finally see Jesus as he really is, he says in that moment, when you see Jesus in heaven and you finally see who he's always been, but it was clouded, you, didn't, you couldn't really see it, when you see him in all of his glory... Like that, there will be an immediate change. There will be an immediate impact, and you will be so transformed by it that you will become like him. That's amazing. That, that immediately all of the sin that clings to you will be burned away. When we see him, we are changed. That's what the Bible says. So this old Isaac Watts hymn says, This is the man, the exalted man, whom we unseen adore. But when our eyes behold his face, our hearts shall love him more. See, the key to more faith is more glory. You have to pray like Moses. Show me your glory, Exodus 33, right? Show me your glory, God. Help me to know you. Not just with my heart, not in the abstract, not as an idea, not as a doctrine, but something more. I mean, Jonathan Edwards described it as the difference between a theoretical and an experiential truth. The disciples experienced the truth of who Jesus was here. They saw the blazing light emanating from his person. They heard the voice that came from the cloud. It was a sensory experience. And the Bible points us to these kinds of things. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, you can study the Bible and come to the conclusion that God is good as a matter of doctrine or conviction, but that is not the same thing as tasting his goodness. And it's the tasting, it's the taste that is actually the transforming reality. Glory, glory is the taste of the sweetness of God in the soul. The word glory describes the weight of something. That's what that word means. It's actually, it can be a noun or a verb. If, you're, if you glory in something, you're assigning a particular weight or significance to that thing. Your glory, noun, is the thing that matters most to you. It's the glory days, right? We talk about the glory days. But you're always in the past and never in the future for some reason. The best days of your life. Oh, the time when you look back and it's just, oh, that's just the best. The best synonym might be matter. Matter, matter refers to physical something, substance, the mass of something, the weight of something, right? But when you say that something matters to you, you see how those two, when you say, when you use the word that matters, you're saying that thing, you're, it carries a certain significance and a certain weight. There's a certain priority that I give that thing. So our problem spiritually is that God does not matter to us the way that he should because he is not the weightiest thing in our life because too often we know him, but we never had an experience like this experience the disciples have here on top of the mountain. J.B. Phillips in 1961, he wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. He said, we've made God smaller than he really is. That's our problem. We've taken this big, uh, overwhelming reality that, that God is, and we've made him small in our thinking. That's our problem, we, and things are, it's why things are such a mess. We allow things that should matter less to matter most, even more than God matters. And by the way, we do this all the time. John Calvin described the human heart as an idol-making factory. See, God has to be the weightiest thing. He has to be the greatest joy. He has to be the truest love of your life, and everything else has to come underneath. Everything else has to be lesser. Otherwise, what happens is your desires get all, get all out of whack. Augustine talked about disordered desires, and everything gets disordered and then ruined. It doesn't matter what it is. If there's something important in your life, but if that thing becomes too important, if it becomes the most important thing, if it becomes the center of gravity for your whole life, if it is anything other than God, it's going to cause real problems. Because if you put something else in that place as the center of gravity for your life and then someone blocks you from it, guess what? You'll not just be angry. You'll have explosive anger. Or if it's threatened, if there's something that's the center of gravity, it's the thing that you have to have in order to be okay and it's threatened, you'll not just worry. You'll have stay up all night, no sleep worry. That carries over into the next day consumed with worry that carries over for days and days and days and if there's something that's really that significant and important to you and if it's taken away from you then you won't just be sad you'll be devastated you won't want to go on living and, and what we're what you learn is that these out of control emotions and desires mean that you have a glory problem we have a glory problem something of lesser importance has become too important and everything is thrown off because of it does that make sense there's an old productivity hack. I think it was Stephen Covey. 
uh, you know, it's like you, you, take a, um, you take a jar, and uh, it's kind of just an object lesson. You take a jar, and you fill the jar with big rocks until they come all the way up to the top of the jar. Now, if you do that, is the jar full? Well, it might appear so, but then what you do is you take a bowl full of pebbles, and you put the pebbles, you pour the pebbles into the jar, and they fall down into the open areas around the big rocks and fill in the jar, but is the jar full? Again, it might, it might appear so, but then you take a bowl of sand, and you add the sand, and it slides down because it's, of course, of smaller, you know, right, little granules of sand. It slides down, and it fills in all the empty spaces that are still left in between the rocks and the pebbles. And is the jar full? Well, yes, this time, yes, it is. There's, no, there's, nowhere, there's nothing else that you could put in the jar. And the lesson, of course, is from a productivity standpoint, you get more done if you do the big things first. But if you start with the small stuff, what if you put the sand in first and then tried to fit the big rocks in? What would happen? You'd fill up the jar with small things. There'd be no room for the bigger stuff. You see the object lesson? God is the big thing. And if you want to have a well-oiled life, you start with him as a matter of importance and priority and love and joy and all of those things. And then everything else comes after and that keeps everything in its proper place. You manage glory. That's how you manage glory. So that you can live a life of faith. Now, let me say one more thing before I come to the, to the end here. There's a point in the story on the mountain when Peter, James, and John, they saw Jesus and they saw Elijah, Elijah and Moses with him, okay? And then in verse 8 it says, all of a sudden there comes a moment when Elijah and Moses are gone and then they only saw Jesus. Now there's an important lesson contained in that detail. And it's just this, that the real glory, I mean, the, we're talking about glory, the real glory, the glory that can change your heart. That glory is the glory of the gospel. Elijah and Moses are representatives of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. The law said, listen, you break your back serving God, and if you do it well enough and consistently enough for long enough, then maybe through your effort you'll earn your way into God's favor. But all of that has gone away now. That's what, that, that's what this point, that's what this is, the point this is making. All of that's gone away in the light of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of God's grace. In Jesus, salvation comes to those who refuse to rely on themselves and instead put all of their confidence and hope in him. Moses, like I said, whose face shone with glory too, after he was on the mountain, he was just the moon. Jesus is the sun. Jesus is not reflecting glory. He is radiating glory. He is the glory of God, right? Hebrews 1.3 says the radiance of the glory of God is the person of Jesus. And he told the three disciples, he said, don't say anything. Don't say anything about this. He wanted them to keep quiet about their experience on the mountain until after his death and resurrection because that was the interpretive key for understanding the glory of God. All of the majesty and glory they saw on the mountain, Jesus' death and his resurrection meant something significant. It meant that all of that was for the sake of others. Jesus' self-giving, sacrificial love and his resurrection power, that's the glory, see? That's the glory. That's the, way you, that's the way you get a sight of God's glory. No one, and here's, and here's some of the things. No one, in light of what Jesus has done, no one is beyond the need of his grace. No one is beyond the reach of his grace. Nothing can separate you from his love. All things are possible because Jesus is alive. Because God has come 
from heaven to earth to reconcile you to himself. John later wrote, maybe thinking about this scene, he said, the word became flesh and it dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. And you can see it too. Listen to this old hymn by William Gadsby. He says, oh, what matchless condescension the eternal God displays. Claiming our supreme attention to his boundless works and ways, his own glory he reveals in gospel days. In the person of the Savior, all his majesty is seen. Love and justice shine forever and without a veil between. Would we view his brightest glory? Here it shines in Jesus' face. Sing and tell the pleasing story, O you sinners saved by grace. And with pleasure, bid the guilty him embrace. Come to Jesus. Fix your gaze upon him. See the brightness of his glory. He will increase your faith. Let's pray together as we come to the table this morning. So, Father, that is what we ask for. We, like Moses, say, show us your glory. Show us your glory. We need, so many of us, we, we live in this place. We came this morning, and maybe, maybe we feel dull of heart, or maybe we just feel like we're going through a dry season. Things have just kind of screeched to a standstill in our life spiritually. And we're here this morning and we would say, would you jumpstart? We flatline. Would you jumpstart our hearts? Would you jumpstart the engine of our lives? Would you, as we gather in this moment now around this table, as we partake of this cup and this bread, would you pierce through our unbelief? Would you rip through the hardness of hearts? Would you break down the, gate, the, the doors and the gates that we have barred ourselves behind? And would you come into us and make yourself known to us in a real tangible way? Would you give us a faith sight of your glory that we might, that we might find greater faith to believe in you, to obey you for the sake of your glory that is at stake with us? We would say, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to the song that they sing in heaven. Uh, the song that we are destined to sing to forever and ever and ever. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then it says that every creature under heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them said to him who sits on the throne and to the land be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever amen let's don't wait to heaven to sing that song let's go in our lives this week everywhere we go singing that song and here is here's the truth that you can hang your life on that can cause your life to erupt in that song is to know that you go not you don't go asking if you can <laughs> He can. And not only can he, he will. Because of the promises that he's made to you that are yours in Jesus Christ. And so this benediction belongs to you if you have faith, if you have faith in him. So believing, receive these words. They are the good word God speaks over your life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.